This audio recording is produced by Food Addicts in Recovery Anonymous, also known as FA. FA is a program based on the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. It is free and open to anyone who wants to stop eating addictively. The following is one FA member's story of recovery. The opinions expressed here are those of the individual member and do not represent FA as a whole. If you are new or uncertain about FA, we encourage you to listen to several stories to gain an understanding of what the program offers. For information on the FA program, please visit our website, foodaddicts.org. This meeting is being sponsored by the World Service Literature Committee for the distinct purpose of creating tapes and CDs for the tape and CD library. Those who wish to, please join me in the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. I came into the program um, nearly 10 years ago at age 26, and I weighed about 200 pounds. So I'm thankful to have been maintaining a 70-pound weight loss approximately for the past Gosh, about nine and a half years. It took me about six months to lose the weight, and then um, those um, inevitable, painful months of trying to lose those last few pounds. But I'm very thankful that this is a spiritual, mental, and physical recovery, because if I had just come in and lost the weight like I had in the past, I'm sure I would have been too frustrated and just left if it had just been a diet program. So at 26 years old, the picture for me was that I was in about $12,000 debt and I was eating all the time anyway, even when I knew I couldn't afford to be going to the grocery store at those hours of the night and mainly after work. Um, I got to 200 pounds obviously over a course of time, but it meant eating a lot of food. You don't just get to 200 pounds overnight. So it started when I was a kid growing up in California being a little bit overweight. I hated those words my whole life, a little bit overweight. (laughs) I come from a family where just about everybody was 20 to 50 to 60, 75 pounds overweight. So it was sort of the norm in my family, but I did not feel normal. My mom um, was overweight and my uncle had a lot of health problems as a result of his obesity. So I sort of saw the, the writing on the wall. But as a young kid, I felt more obsessed about my body than I did about my weight, specific body parts. So I was very self-centered at an early age, focusing on me, 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 and my body. Um, Interestingly enough, my dad got an offer to move to Europe. So my story is that we moved every three years of my life, not from a military family, but just because we got transferred. So I lived the life of an expatriate kid. And as an expat kid, I wanted American food, even though I lived in Switzerland, where there's plenty of good sugary and flowery foods. They serve it morning, noon, and night, and in between. And to me, it was considered healthy, especially if it was a foreign food. Somehow, flour and sugar, if it were foreign or French or Swiss, were, was healthy. I can tell you, did not eat it in a healthy way. We also were served uh, wine at restaurants, and it wasn't unusual to have a glass of wine at home. But at home, the picture looked like this. I was resentful when we would be passing around the casseroles and I didn't get the exact crunchy part that I wanted. Mm -hmm. I had an older brother who got that piece or my dad got the biggest piece of starchy thing going around the table. And so I knew something was wrong with that. The other things that I felt growing up were intense loneliness. I, as I mentioned, had one older brother who 
um, was very successful and didn't necessarily want his little sister tagging along. So I was very much a tag along and a, a bit of a tomboy. Um, I felt rejected a lot. And um, when I came to recovery, I saw that that really didn't have anything to do with my family. And I had this disease really early on that I think was already have, having me feel these feelings and have these voices in my mind telling me a lot of negative things. So a lot of people call it low self-esteem. Um, I call it food addiction and the mental illness. Um, constantly feeling good things but looking for the bad. That was my story a lot of the time. I played soccer. My dad coached my team. I still feel like I didn't get enough attention. I was in drama. I was in sports. And I felt like I wasn't good enough. So that was a common theme. When I would get frustrated um, on the soccer field, I couldn't wait till halftime when we got um, the food, but it was some kind of healthy food, so then I couldn't wait till the game was over and we got the stuff in the packages, especially the sweet, juicy drinks that came in those packages with the straws. I can remember very well what those taste like today. And I remember these powdered drinks and just having so much powder left at the end of the glass. <laughs> and how it was just like um, scooping it up with a spoon. I just wanted that um, feeling of a rush to my mind. It just took me away from the negative feelings of I didn't play well enough. Um, I was too big and too fat, and I didn't get to play the position I wanted, and how come my brother ran faster, and how come that girl over there looked better in her soccer shorts, and she has skinny thighs. And that one over there um, got to go on a really nice vacation and spend lots of money. So I was comparing myself also a lot um, early, early on, whether it was when we were living in Switzerland, comparing myself to other people's wealth, or um, coming back here, and more focused on living in California and what the California Beach Girls' bodies were like. So whenever I felt lonely, food was the thing that was there for me. And some of the things that I think aren't normal are that I would sneak food, I would go into the kitchen, and I'd hear my mother's voice saying, who's in the kitchen? So right there I knew it wasn't right, but I would do it anyway. And I would hope that my brother and my dad would get the blame. <laughs> so I remember how the magnets snapped shut on the um, cabinet doors in Switzerland. I remember how they snapped shut in California. And I remember the shame of going to my grandmother's house, knowing that she had stuff fresh baked in the tin, waiting till everybody was gone, and going in at night to go to the tin of the fresh baked goods that she had made, all because I was addicted and because I was nervous about being around my grandmother, I was comparing myself to my cousins, I was uncomfortable about family dynamics and the only real thing that could take that away from me was that escape, you know, escape into food. Um, as I got older the escape turned into needing more and more amounts of food and needing more and more amounts of um, partying and escapism and I also just felt that increasing shame about the way I was eating, I felt guilty about the way I was eating so I just stacked guilt upon guilt upon guilt. One of the things we did as a family on Sunday mornings is we made these big homemade breakfasts involving an iron and uh, lots of sweet stuff all over it. And it was sort of a bonding experience for us. So there was a lot of bonding and showing of love with food, but still I didn't um, feel satisfied when it was over. I felt angry when meals were over a lot of the time. And I especially felt angry when somebody got more than I did and also that the bond was over. I felt like I didn't relate to the family unless I was really eating with them or unless we were going on a trip somewhere. We went on a lot of road trips as a family, especially when we were living in Europe. I was very uh, you know, blessed to have been able to go see all these castles and cathedrals and war battle sites. But 
I was the type who wanted to stay in the car, and then when we got there, am I going to get some sweet treat when we get out? <laughs> and depending on the country, I, I knew what, what it was going to be. And I was a little bit of a picky eater in that I wanted carbohydrate with fat smothered all over it. That's basically what I ate, white and yellow. <laughs> Maybe a little red sauce on there. So I was um, getting loaded up on carbohydrates very early on. The weight started really demonstrating itself on my body, or this disease started demonstrating itself on my body, particularly around puberty. Um, I, I was very tall, very fast. I developed and um, started looking older than my age and started getting atten male attention from older guys. And again, feeling ashamed and feeling guilty about it and feeling really scared. I come from a really prudish family, and that's, that's a blessing in some respects, but I... Um, compromised my integrity and um, I felt guilty about it. So what did I do? I went out and ate. We had sporting events, swim meets, where you had to bring food for your quote-unquote secret pal. We'd draw names and you had to bake something or cook something or buy something. And the coaches would encourage us, like, don't bring sugar. You're just going to get a sugar high or you get in the pool and you're going to be burnt out by the time you get in there and you're not going to swim a good race. So here I was size 14, embarrassed to get into my bathing suit for the school swim meet. There were guys sitting there watching. I was holding my stomach on the diving block mm -hmm. <laughs> and thinking, I can't wait to go get that home-baked stuff that my secret pal brought. And if she forgot, which happened, I would be, again, I'd feel those feelings of anger, unusually strong anger. <laughs> and I was the type who flaked out. I was the type who forgot to make something for my secret pal, so I would just go to the snack bar and, gee, while I was at the snack bar, I'd get a couple bars for myself. And it didn't matter if it was, you know, 8 o'clock in the morning before school or 9.30 at the brunch line. You better believe I was in that brunch line. And I don't know that I was like all the other kids at the brunch line. I was, you know, 20, 30 pounds overweight, ashamed, just praying the cute guy didn't see me or praying that my friends didn't see me going back, looking over my shoulder. Why? Nobody was watching me. So I had these negative feelings, this paranoia, feeling that, like a camera, like a video camera was following me around this utter self-centeredness. Um, either everybody loves me or nobody likes me. So that um, feeling of what I've learned later in this program of being an egomaniac with an inferiority complex. Um, my parents split up when I was in high school. I was a sophomore and I spent time back and forth with my mother and her new husband, my stepdad, and my dad and his new wife, my stepmom. So I felt really out of it, um, like I didn't belong in any part of the family. And I sort of felt like that in the world as a food addict. Plus having lived in Europe, speaking the foreign language, coming here, having funny looking clothes. And I felt like, um, okay, well I'll try to lose weight to fit in. And as soon as I would lose weight, I would get accolades, I would get attention, I'd get attention from family members, people at school. And then something funny would happen, people would get jealous. And I was such a people pleaser because I felt like I didn't belong. I wanted everybody to like me all the time, that as soon as somebody got jealous, I thought, well, I don't want to do that then. And then I would inevitably put the weight back on. I tried um, Joni Gregan's workout in the mornings. I tried um, Jane Fonda video at night. I remember losing a bunch of weight one time and a soccer coach saying, hey, you look really great, but my attitude was so bad and I was so angry all the time that um, he benched me. So this is definitely a mental illness that has nothing to do with being thin, meaning, Thin is not well, as they say, so that, that proved to be true for me. I remember one time gaining a little weight, and my brother, who is, um, and is two and a half years older, I think he was a senior in high school, saying, yeah, I weighed 160 pounds. And I thought, oh, I'm not telling him how much I weigh, because I, I remember it was 162. 
I was horrified that I weighed more than my brother. So that was a dance for me, size 10, 12, 14, 10, 12, 14. It was a good day if I could fit into a 10. Um, I tanned, I tried going to tanning booths, and that I remember um, going to the frozen food places thinking that was healthy, and I would just be mesmerized, which topping, which topping, which topping is going to do it. I couldn't decide which topping to put on something, which was going to fix me. And then I would pick one, and I'd pick two, and I'd mix them up, and I'd be like, darn it, I wish I got the other one. That was the wrong one. <laughs> Nothing fixed me. Food did not fix me. A boyfriend did not fix me. Alcohol did not fix me. Um, my family couldn't fix me. And finally, my mother said, hey, do you want to try therapy? So I'm in California, right, you know, Northern California. All my friends are in therapy, sure, why not? And I had my first experience going to a therapist. Meanwhile, I was a peer counselor at school, being doctor, therapist, Dr. Freud, all my friends. So my other part of my history that's very strong is taking care of others before myself. And, and that is a constant lesson I'm being taught in this recovery, is to take really good care of myself. I didn't know back then I was a food addict, a very sensitive person with a delicate nervous system, but absolutely I was then and I am now, but I was ultra, ultra sensitive. So I'd go to the therapist's office, spend $100 and just cry and moan about this going on and that going on and my boyfriend this and my family that and not talk too much about being fat. I talked about being suicidal. I talked about how I wanted to die. I'd have fantasies about wanting to die, about driving my car into another car. And from the outside, people wouldn't know this. I got a car when I turned 16. Granted, it was a hand-me-down car, unlike the cars in the parking lot at my school. And again, I would compare myself and not be able to see the fact that I got a car. That's what this addiction did for me. Um, but I continued to see therapists all the way through college. I went off to uh, Boulder, Colorado for college, and I gained the freshman 15, and I gained the freshman 30. And my college roommate to this day is one of my best friends and says, yeah, I remember you would just keep going back to the line. <laughs> so that was a really humbling experience hearing. Um, I think my disease really took off at that point. I was very glad to be away from home and independent, but I was constantly worrying about money. Now, mind you, I'd had my first job beginning in junior high as a babysitter. And I've had to go back and make amends to homes where I babysat because of all the food I took out of their house and ate. And I remember one woman, when I asked for a raise, looked at me like, well, we're already giving you this much per hour and you're eating a lot of our food, is what I thought was going through her mind. But I think she didn't want to give me the raise because she knew what I was eating, her out of health and home. You know, the one-and-a-half-year-old couldn't be doing that. So then I progressed to working at a cafe in a department store, and so I would use my store discount, buy clothes, get myself into debt. Uh, I think I had a credit card at 18, and feel ashamed and embarrassed and insecure and go into the walk-in refrigerator and just pray nobody was about to come in. I wasn't literally praying at that time, but in my mind I was thinking, I hope no one comes in right now and sees me eat. I'd go on my breaks and we'd get free food and we'd get food that you had to pay for as an employee. And I didn't pay for that food. And I was stealing. I'd go back and make amends for that too. <laughs> so there were many times where I felt like, um, I can handle this. I can do this. The, the lies that this disease would tell. I'd be on a job thinking, I'm making money, I'm going to be okay, I'm going to pay off this debt. And I would feel insecure and lonely. And then I'd think, I'll just go shopping. Like, that'll take away those feelings. And then I would wind up with some clothes I didn't really like all that much because I couldn't fit into what I really wanted. And then stopping at the food court getting food because I was so disappointed. I ate over being disappointed in a big way. Disappointment was a common theme along with loneliness and insecurity. So these jobs um, were not perfect either. I didn't feel like I was getting the attention that I wanted there either, having an insatiable appetite for attention. And I 
learned in this program that people will disappoint us. We're all human. Nobody is perfect. I was looking constantly to boyfriends, to professors, to bosses to make me feel better, to give me praise. And when I'd get a good grade, I'd call home and I wouldn't get the praise that I wanted. And even if I did, I would think, well, that wasn't enthusiastic enough. <laughs> so never enough. That's how I know I'm an addict. I have this disease of more, more, more because it can always be better, richer, thinner, smarter, faster. And um, as an addict, I think a lot of that just helped me self-destruct. I graduated from college, chalked up a, boy a boyfriend who did cocaine. He dealt it out of his fraternity house and chalking up a relationship with a guy who went into um, rehab for drugs and alcohol. And at that point, I had heard about 12-step recovery which was sort of Boulder was a mecca for that at the time. It was in the 80s, and um, a lot of inner child work was very, very popular and a lot of therapy, so it wasn't um, abnormal or unpopular to be in therapy. I couldn't afford it, so I was on a sliding scale. And again, I would just go to the woman's office and say, I think I might be schizophrenic. I don't know what's wrong with me. And finally, I started getting panic attacks. So when the anxiety attacks came, I would go into the health center and say, is something really wrong with me? They would ask me my name, the date, you know who the current president is. And I thought, well, they're really thinking I'm crazy. <laughs> I was crazy with the food. And they say, what did you eat? What are you eating? And I remember telling them, well, I'll slim fast, and I'll throw a piece of fruit in there and blend it. And like my roommates at 6 a.m. really appreciated that. I shared a room with two other girls in a sorority house. And <laughs> that didn't fix me either. And they were calling the CDC saying, well, gosh, what's in there? It was very new at the time. And all I was eating was that and carbohydrate. They just looked at me like, you need to be feeding yourself better. So I went on the McDougal diet, and I tried being a vegetarian. I was a 200-pound um, vegetarian. <laughs> so there's plenty of carbohydrate out there for, for vegans and vegetarians alike. And it didn't matter whether I was vegetarian or not. I was an addict, and so I could not stop, even though I thought I could many times. And now I'm, I'm, I'm not a vegetarian, and I eat healthy, and I can stop by the grace of this program and, and a food scale and God. So... Uh, after graduating those relationship situations and um, food dilemmas, I lost weight again, and I experienced the same experience um, as before. I joined a 12-step program for food recovery, and a lot of the people were overweight, and when I had success, they got jealous, and I felt like an outsider again. So I inevitably got the lonelies and felt disappointed, and what did I do? I turned to food. I also tried the geographic cure of moving over to Europe, having grown up there, and I moved to Germany where I barely spoke the language. I did speak a little bit. So the way I would get to work is I would take one bus, then a subway, then one bus, and then walk. And I can't even name how many bakeries were on the way. <laughs> so I was spending a dollar here, three dollars there, and looking at them like, how do you say that one? How do you say that one? I knew how to say those names by the time I lived there, you know, several months. And then I would buy bags of things that I had to shell on the way on my walk. It was like Hansel and Gretel just leaving a path behind me. Um, and I felt so lonely over there. The loneliness only multiplied. And here back home they were saying, oh, isn't that neat? Our daughter's living in Europe. Oh, my friend lives in Germany. Isn't that cool? And I was over there with four to $600 phone bills going into deeper debt, lonely, wishing I was with my family, who I so-called so didn't really want to be close to, and that's why I was over there. Um, I found myself uh, drinking and finally went into recovery, um, not only for that food program, but also for um, alcohol addiction. So I really learned the concept of addiction there, and I remember feeling so frustrated. Why don't they have something like this for food? 
And my mother would even say that, well, you have such success in this program, why don't you try it when it comes to your food problem or your weight problem? I'd call home and my family would say, how's your exercise going? And I'm thinking, I don't have an exercise program problem, I'm crazy. I sit at a business meeting at work, everybody leaves, and I'm sitting there at the conference room thinking, are, are they gone yet so I can eat the leftover food in the conference room? And then I would think, I'm not going to eat it, I'm not going to eat it, I'll be okay. Dousing my coffee with the creamer and with all this sugary stuff, going back to my desk and then thinking at 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon, it's still in the conference room, isn't it? I bet you that food's still in there. So I had a preoccupation with food that took away from my work experience, that took away from my um, sharing experience with my family. I remember one time I was at home visiting relatives in California and an aunt was visiting and that we were in a line and I cut in front of her to beeline it to the buffet table and somebody called out my, my full name. And I remember thinking, what? I just wanted to get to the table. And I was, but really on the inside, deep down, the little still, still small voice in me was saying, I am so embarrassed. I knew that was wrong. I was so uncomfortable with the feelings that I just want to get to that food now. Yeah, patience is, is a, something that I did, did not have when it came to getting my food. So the behaviors just got worse in the sense that I um, tried chewing tons of gum to keep the weight off. I tried exercise. I tried smoking cigarettes. I could smoke in my office there, and it was such a gross feeling. I would take the first few drags and think, wow, I'm cool. This feels good. I can smoke in my office. Wow. Or have, or before when I was still drinking, okay, um, aren't I cool at this bar? I, oh, I only smoke when I'm partying. <laughs> and then after a couple drags, it would just taste so bad in my mouth. And it was just that way with food. It had stopped working. I would take a few bites and be so good, and I'd think, oh, this is really helping me. Thank goodness I'm eating this, or I'd be eating something really bad over here. And then it would be like mush in my mouth. It would be like chewing something that didn't even taste like anything anymore. My gums would start to hurt from the sugar. Um, I would cut the parts of my gums from biting on stuff that was too hard and, and pasty. And that stopped working too, just like the cigarettes. And by the way, the cigarettes never kept me thin. <laughs> Gum didn't keep me thin. It just gave me a lot of gas and helped me feel really uncomfortable. And I was totally addicted to the sweet. I was totally addicted to that sorbitol and that NutraSweet. And I was addicted to that NutraSweet dating way back to the 80s when I was drinking that Crystal Light pitchers of it for myself, rationalizing that, well, it's not sugar. I was drinking liter bottles of Diet Coke, thinking, honestly thinking, if I drink a liter, it will help me be thinner. I thought a diet food would make me thin, so I'd eat more of it. I thought a diet drink would make me thin, so I'd drink more of it. And my family, and my mother in particular, would say, did you just have a Diet Coke? <laughs> they would see me spin around like a top and know when I got really hyper that I'd either eaten something or that I'd had a bunch of caffeine. So I used caffeine as a drug to um, feed my addiction. And I would work till um, 7, 8, 9, 10 o'clock at night to try to get more done, more done, more done, more of that more disease. And really what it was is that I was so lonely. I had this gaping spiritual hole that I was trying to fill with food and all those other substances. And they felt better. They felt better. Instant gratification felt good. I wanted something instant. I don't want to wait to feel better, wait three days for the discomfort to go by or wait a month until I felt better. I wanted instant weight loss. I wanted instant gratification. And I wanted to feel good now. That's another way I know I'm an addict. So when I would feel so lonely like that, I wouldn't want to leave work. I would, it would be my, the vending machine and I, just waiting to 
have a conversation. So I'd go over to the vending machine and look what was there and think, I'm just going to buy gum this time. Oh, well, actually, I think I had this for lunch. It's pretty low calorie, so I can have that thing in the, in the wrapper after all. And it's kind of healthy because it has a few healthy components to this. And if I look at the calories on it and the fat content, it was a math equation all of a sudden. What, was I thinking about my job? No. I was thinking about the vending machine. Was I thinking about how can I have a more productive weekend? How can I have a relationship? No, I was totally preoccupied with food. I counted calories, I counted fat grams, I had a binder. I counted fat grams of green beans, of cans of green beans. And I would rationalize, well, I have the green beans, so I can have that. It was, it was a crazy um, mental um, exhaustion. It was just the process of mental exhaustion. The obsession got worse over time. So by the time I was 26, I had been in um, several 12-step programs. And I had been um, spending and saying to friends, hey, you want to go out to eat, even though I'd already eaten, so that I was spending so much money that I got into deeper debt. And I had a boyfriend um, over in Germany, but I had moved back to um, California and um, felt those lonely feelings, didn't want to go home, because it reminded me of when I used to go, be afraid to go home as a kid. I used to um, balance on my handlebars something frozen or some kind of food that I could eat with my one hand dangerously on the you know on my bike without holding the handlebars i used to do the exact same thing in a car i'd be driving the car with my knee dipping something in something else i'd have wrappers under the back seat and i'd have gum wrappers um, filling up and stuffing the ashtray i would go to places that were like a day old cheaper by the dozen or cheaper by forget three for one and i remember one time being so ashamed i was driving on the freeway and just started crumbling them out the window thinking well doesn't count because I didn't eat the whole, all of them. I didn't eat the whole thing and I threw the rest out the window. That's a lonely existence. It was almost like I was talking to the food in the car. I was alone, feeling so alone. I tried spiritual um, aspects. I tried different organizations. I tried going to women's empowerment retreats. I spent $600 to fly to Wisconsin. I was going to two, uh, one or two women's groups a week. I was going to body workers. I was going to financial counselor. None of it got me out of debt, none of it got me thin, and I still felt really alone. So finally, I gave up, and I thought, I, I can do this part myself. I'll just go to some meetings, but not these food ones. And I felt hopeless is the bottom line. I weighed um, 192 pounds, and then I went again to my doctor and said, I'm still having these panic attacks. I feel like I'm having a heart attack. What is this feeling shooting down my arm? And they said, well, we'll give you antidepressants if you can get enough sleep, get exercise, and do something you like for two weeks. So needless to say, I could not accomplish any of those things. I could call my boyfriend every night before I went to bed. I was 26 years old and slept with a teddy bear. That's the kind of insecurity I had. And she wouldn't give me the antidepressant medication. So what did I do? Fine. Waited a couple months, went to another doctor. At that point, I weighed even more. And he said, well, there's a pharmacy downstairs. And he just wrote me the prescription, and I walked around with that prescription in my purse, burning a hole in my purse, thinking, that's not going to fix me. I just know it's not. I know I have a deeper problem. I heard enough information from therapy, from, from all these 12-step programs, that I knew something deeper was going on. And then finally, I called a hotline and said, I, um, it was the Overeaters Anonymous hotline, actually, and I said, I need, I need help. And the meeting down here, I haven't been in a while. So... I waited until it was the end of the sales quarter at work. I had um, made some money in a commission check and thought, now I can get better. That was always the case, kind of like waiting for Monday for a diet. It's like, now that I have all these ducks in a row, I'll go get better. But it was like 
a merry-go-round. I just wanted to get off. I felt like the world was a merry-go-round that kept spinning and spinning and spinning, and I just wanted to get off. I couldn't figure out how to get off. I felt like if I get off, I'll get fired. If I get off here, my family will be mad. If I get off there, my boyfriend and I won't work out. If I get off here, I won't be able to do whatever it is I want, you know, the instant gratification. If I get off completely, I won't have my food. <laughs> That's the bottom line. I was willing to weigh and measure certain things, but even when I was in a uh, food program, I could only abstain from sugar for six months. That was the longest I'd, I'd gone. And I only lost about um, 30 to 40 pounds. So I, I didn't feel comfortable being, quote unquote, comfortably overweight. I didn't feel comfortable weighing two, 20 pounds um, too many. So I called this hotline, and thank you, God, um, somebody gave me the number of someone who's working the program the way we do today. And I went to my first meeting with a big chip on my shoulder, like a 12-pound times 12, 12-step chip on my shoulder from being in other programs. And I was, the small voice inside me was saying, you know, I'm really scared. This might work. And thankfully, that just barely overshadowed the voice that was saying, run, get out, don't do it, I just want to eat. So I stayed, and I learned um, self-respect, and I learned respect. F.A. earned my respect. God broke me down and humbled me, and I learned how to get on my knees. And I remember the first day, the morning I got up, after weighing and measuring three meals a day, after saying, I can't go buy a scale, I'm in debt. I don't have the money, I can't afford it. <laughs> I could afford to get all this food in the size um, 16s that I was in at that point because I needed to go buy a suit for a business trip, but I couldn't buy a $30 scale that was going to save my life. So I went and bought it, and then I weighed and measured my food that day, and the next day when I woke up and got on my knees and hadn't eaten in between meals, hadn't had a snack. I mean, a snack was just part of my vocabulary. A snack to me equated healthy. Snack healthy. And I felt some hope. But I would get so many of those voices that would say, really, I can do this, I can do this myself, well, you know, let's try it. And I didn't completely surrender. That's what it was. I was afraid to surrender. I was afraid to surrender to a sponsor. I was afraid to surrender the food. I was afraid to surrender the caffeine and the cigarettes. And so um, I continued to be very angry. I was losing weight, but I was very angry. And thank you, God, I was losing weight because once a month when I get on that scale and see that number go down, I said, okay, I'll stay. <laughs> I'm going to stay in this program then. I'll stay one more month or I'll stay one more day. And I was very preoccupied um, with work. And um, finally, what happened was I disrespected my sponsor every day. I didn't call her on time. And she finally said, I think it probably worked for you to be with somebody else. And I got somebody who didn't come from California originally. I got somebody who came from the New England area originally. And she really had a strong program and set the foundation for my recovery. Um, she taught me to call on time. I had to literally put a post-it memo sticker on my clock that said, get up, get on knees, call on time. And I wanted to hit snooze all day long. I didn't have discipline. Could I look like I did? Worked all, oh, look how hard I work. Aren't I disciplined? But the truth was, I was really lazy in the areas that needed attention. And that's what I'm learning over and over in this program. When it comes to the basics of weighing and measuring my food, of having the groceries in the house, of getting to my meetings 10 minutes early to greet people, and of calling my sponsor on time, none of those things were part of my um, conception of what was important. So my, my priorities were really messed up. My priorities were looking good, feeling good, having a lot of money, um, and um, having Prince Charming come and save me. <laughs> escape, escape, escape. And I love the part of the big book that talks about how good reality is. 
I had to hear things like that to understand it. I wouldn't believe you if you said reality is really okay, reality is really good, balancing your checkbook feels great. I didn't balance my checkbook. It took me time and program to start balancing my checkbook. 26 years old. I um, remember telling her finally, um, my sponsor that is, that I was in debt, and her saying, just weigh and measure your food, just weigh and measure your food. And it's true, so many of my life's problems have been ironed out from just weighing and measuring my food because it got too uncomfortable to go to the shopping center every Friday when I felt lonely. Instead of going to the shopping center, I went home and felt lonely. Just try feeling lonely. So I'd be lonely. And I'd wake up the next day and I wouldn't be lonely anymore. And it was okay. I could make a phone call and not be lonely. I could pray and say, God, be with me. I am lonely. Take this away. And that's dissipated over time. Um, it's so nice to not be in debt. It's so nice to know what's in my checking account and to check that balance every day and to be more disciplined and to have the courage and the um, humility to say to my sponsor, I really want to buy this, is this okay? <laughs> or I bought this, is that okay or do I need to go return it? And to ask about my food, how can I be more honest with my food? How can I stop messing around with this food? Or here's how I'm preparing it. I just wanted more. I was so scared that I thought um, more food would fix some kind of work problem or relationship problem. And ultimately, what, came, what happened to me is I was in quiet time hearing all sorts of things and the awarenesses that I'd kind of already known, but was like, no, 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 I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. And one of them was, I think the relationship that you're in isn't working out for you. And I'd known that for years. I was just too scared to do anything about it. But for the first time, I believed that if I wasn't in a relationship, I might not eat. I might be okay if I leave this relationship now that I'm in this program. This was the first program where I'd gone through life situations, um, difficult conversations, bridal showers, weddings. I remember being asked to be in a wedding um, before I got into this program and just being horrified, like, what do I do? I, I can't fit into that dress. And having to go to the tailor and having to order a size 18 and then saying, well, you have to order a size up because really it's going to be smaller. And then taking it in, which meant, well, really it was still a 16. And now, you know, how to go through being in a wedding accident. It was such a different story to be able to do it. I had that faith, this little tiny inkling of faith, and it worked. So I remember calling after breaking up and reaching fellow members of FA and just saying, I, I don't know what to do. I'm so scared. I haven't been through life without a relationship in four years. What do I do? And so I learned how to make my higher power my higher power instead of relationships, food, cigarettes, work. And it's just been a process for me, and it still is a daily process. And a lot of things that helped me were the slogans, like, one day at a time. Easy does it. Easy does it in your mind. Ask God for help. Ask God to shut off your head. Relax. Ask God for help to relax on the inside. That's a wonderful one for me. And I learned a lot of things in program. I went over to Hawaii on a business trip where, where I had um, succeeded in terms of sales numbers, and we all went as a group, and... Um, I wound up coming back and breaking my absence when I got back. And the truth was, I was not honest while I was in Hawaii. I was ladling on the dressing and eyeballing with I don't know whose eyeballs, you know. <laughs> not, not, God help me, way I measure my food with your eyes. And so I did have to go back to day one. And the way I went back to day one was I had been listening to tapes, FA tapes like these really were wonderful, especially in the early days of FA in California where there were not enough people to qualify every week. And... One person had said, well, I, I started eating and then I stopped and then I went back to the rest of my meal and finished it later. And I justified it thinking, well, I'm at a bridal shower and they're going to open the presents and I don't want to be um, a pest and finishing the meal over here, so I'll just wait till they're done with the gifts. It won't be that long. 
and there was a voice inside me that said, call your sponsor, ask for help, call someone. And I was so into people-pleasing at the time, I thought, I don't want to bother her, and I don't want to look different. And so I learned the hard way, and let me have... Let me tell you that when people say, let me have done it for you, they mean it. Because what came up for me after that experience was not having to go back to the food, thank God, but where all those voices of, well, I can handle it. I'm going to leave this program. I can't believe this. This is so strict and so so um, impossible. So if you're new listening to this, it's not impossible. It's impossible to do it on my own. But with God and this program and fellows and the humility that I needed from that experience, I can do this. Um, anything's possible with God. So I really don't recommend it. I really recommend being honest and being careful going out. Going out to eat is not something I um, savor anymore. It's something I ask God for help about. And I have had to, um, you know, on birthdays and experiences like that, say to my sponsor, what do you think of this restaurant? And learn the hard way. Well, okay, not that restaurant? Okay. Because it doesn't give me peace. And what's attractive is peace. What's attractive is being relaxed. So I can't stand up here and say in um, July I'll have 10 years of abstinence. You know, by God's grace, I'll... Uh, nine years of abstinence, which to me is just phenomenal considering when I came in and heard people were a year abstinent. I thought, how'd they get a year? How'd they do that? One day at a time. It's the same. It's just a, a new level of recovery. I'm so thankful to be able to be in an AWOL and to learn more about why it is that I ate. Um, some of the things like guilt and shame and procrastination and self-centeredness. And learning that I'm not a bad person, I'm just a, a good person getting better, but with a lot of defects. Um, that everybody's got them, and I can talk about them with people. I don't have to take care of everybody else in the world now. I can call and say, I need help. And that's been a really hard thing for me to do in this program, is learn those three words. I need help. Call up people and say, I need help. Get on my knees and say, God, I need help. Help me. And getting the help is such a relief. Trying to run the world is not a relief. And that's not... Um, where the serenity is. So I continue to get a lot of gifts out of this program, and some of, it, some of the biggest gifts have been getting through those tough situations. My, my uh, beloved grandmother passed away, and I got to be there, and you better believe I had my little cooler with my meals um, in the hospital. And I thought, gosh, am I going to go down and have lunch? I went and had lunch, and then I went over upstairs to her room, and she was still around, and got to be there as she passed on and got to have my dinner that night thinking, wow, I'm present for this? And you better believe there were a lot of tears involved with grief, and I was crying, and I was feeling feelings that are really uncomfortable for an, an addict or any person. And I didn't um, have to go back to day one. I knew nothing's worth day one after going back to day one. I went through the um, death of my uncle, who died of adult-onset diabetes and from poor health and not taking care of himself and being his only niece and sort of the apple of his eye <laughs> and missing that and I didn't eat. Um, I went through thinking, I'm going to go work in the fashion industry and that's going to fix me and I'm going to meet um, Prince Charming and I'm going to pursue this great career and then getting laid off and not eating. My ego bruised? Absolutely. My pride hurt? Definitely. But did I go back to eating? No. And that is because of this program and that is because I had guidance from a sponsor and that is because I waited to do things until I'd been through AWOLs and um, gotten a deeper connection with my higher power and part of that was living in New York City and going through September 11th and um, going home, walking home with complete mayhem and thinking, you know, if this is because they told us there are nine planes, it's not, you know, whatever they thought, it's nine planes and we we're all terrified obviously and getting home 
and thinking, why didn't I just stop at one of these Starbucks? Why didn't I just stop at one of these places? That is God. I can't believe I'm thinking, get home, have your abstinent meal. That's all I know. Everything else is going to work out. And going to bed those first two weeks with those planes over my head, terrified, and talking to my sponsor and hearing her say, those planes are protecting you. God is protecting you. It's, it's gratitude that changes my attitude. It's thinking about the positive that comes from this program because, like I said, I come from negativity. Um, I come from pe- pessimism or looking at what's wrong and things not being enough. And this program is helping me see that's a tragedy. That's a terrible thing that happened. But I didn't eat. And I can be a walking example of, you think you have a reason to eat? You think you have a reason to eat? That's an excuse. Somebody died? I'm sorry. Don't eat. You went through September 11th? I'm sorry. Don't eat. There are people here who are going to give you a hug. There are people here who are going to give you support. But they're not going to tell you, oh, yeah, that is a rough thing. Maybe you should eat. (laughs) They're not going to say, that's hard. I understand you broke your abstinence. They're going to say, you have a disease that's going to kill you, and you're going to go through these feelings, and you're going to be okay as long as you weigh and measure your food, and you pick up that phone, and you do service. So call those people back from other countries. Call those people back from across the country and get the support you need. I um, more recently went through the sudden um, death of my cousin in a car accident. So my sponsor points out to me, there's been a lot of death. And I think, oh, I don't want to say that about my family. I don't want to say that about my life. But when I'm humble and really see things as they truly are, yeah, there's been some things that have gone on um, in recovery that have been probably worse than than um, when I was younger or in abstinence. My parents' divorce was very traumatic for me at age 15. but. Other than that, you know, I, I led a pretty charmed life. I compared myself and show, tried to tell myself it wasn't so great and I wasn't as rich as so-and-so and I didn't have the good looks like so-and-so and, oh, I'm so tall and, oh, poor me. But the truth was there were a lot of things that went down in my life in recovery um, that were harder to deal with. And I know that God was carrying me and I know that God said, okay, we need for you to be in recovery now because there's going to be some things where you're really going to need to be um, helped. And flour and sugar and something in a bottle or a package really can't take away any of those experiences and any of this pain. It just passes. It just passes over time, whether it's a relationship issue or a financial issue. Um, and being laid off, guess what? I just kept taking my sponsor's suggestion of plugging away, of pounding the pavement, of going on online, of looking in the newspapers and getting a job, any job. And through that process, I realized I wanted to come back to California to be closer to my um, larger fellowship. It was really wonderful to help open meetings in New York City and to co-lead an AWOL and to see the growth there. But I really missed being um, around my larger fellowship and around my family. So that's recovery, the fact that I wanted to be around my family. Mm-hmm. And I let go of that um, idea of working in fashion, and I asked God for help and my sponsor for help on what to do next. And I wound up um, doing a job that required me to pray every day to be the best worker bee that I could be. And I do that now. Um, all the time I pray for humility because I hear that's the ticket to long-term abstinence. And I think that's what I recognize somehow. God had me realize when I came into FA that this is a long-term abstinence program. I could actually be abstinent for years and years and years. And it, make, it made sense to me because I thought, well, how come all these alcoholics can stand up and say, I've been sober for 40, 50 years. Well, I cannot have um, flour and sugar and survive. So if I stay humble and I keep weighing my food and get on my knees morning and night, and in between if I need it, and if I make my connections over the phone, and if I read my 24-hour book and my Just for Today card every morning like I do and write a gratitude list every night, um, all those old feelings of depression go away. All those, I don't have anxiety or panic attacks anymore, thank God. Um, after some of those experiences in my life that I described, 
I felt those feelings of depression again. I thought, wait a minute, what is this? Why do I have this? I'm in recovery. The truth was I was scared and I was tired and I was angry. I lacked acceptance. So my sponsor said, read the acceptance page every night before you go to bed. And I still do that now. And I think, which person, place, or situations is it going to be tonight when I'm reading that page? <laughs> and sometimes I'll think, oh, yeah, boss. Oh, yeah, um, family. Oh, yeah, money. Oh, yeah, um, singlehood or person X, Y, Z or situation in the world. And I can just see that, okay, if I accept this and try not to play God, then I will um, be so much lighter and I'll have peace and I'll be less likely to reach for something, a substance of some kind uh, and food to fix me. So it's really nice to be in a thin body. It's nice not to have, um, to take Tagamet, to be tested for ulcers. I mean, I remember all those scopes checking me for ulcers, thinking, I am way too young to have an ulcer. I'm so thankful that some of the pre-diabetic problems I had, um, which were not found until I was thin, um, didn't progress into diabetes later. It's incredible to me that I'm that young having these, these problems. Um, I go to doctors. I talk to my sponsor. Is it okay to take this? What do you think of that? So many of the issues have gone away from just from being abstinent. So physical, mental, and spiritual recovery and um, learning that it's not about perfectionism. I, am, I do my tools. I do way I measure my food. But being spiritually perfect, that's a daily journey that's starting to be fun. Learning how to be more patient, tolerant, and kind, that's something that comes from wanting to do it. I want the help today. I want the recovery today. I want to keep growing. I like being thin. I like the physical recovery. But I so want the spiritual connection to deepen. And it helps me in my relationships. It helps me to be a better worker. And it gives me a sense of purpose to do this kind of service. So thank you. Please join me in a moment of silence followed by the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Thank you for listening to this audio recording. To hear additional recordings or to learn more about Food Addicts and Recovery Anonymous, you can visit our website, foodaddicts.org.